0: The son of an American mother and a Greek father, George Andreu was born in New York but spent his early childhood in Greece. He graduated from Harvard College in 1987 with a degree in English literature and languages. At Alfred A. Knopf, where he advanced to senior editor and vice president, Andreu founded Vintage Español, an imprint dedicated to publishing fiction and nonfiction in Spanish for the U.S. market. And worked with literary and intellectual stars such as John Ashbery, Juno Diaz, Sonia Sotomayor, and Nobel laureates V.S. Nepal and Oren Pamuk. Welcome to The Bibliophile. Thank you. I was particularly taken with a response in an interview with the Harvard Gazette that you did a year or two ago that I'd like to uh, read out. You say, depending on what you are reading, reading can be extremely boring. And so I have sympathy for those people who don't like to read. But there's nothing I endure more when it's gratifying my desire for something great. When it's less than that, I find myself only wishing I could read faster. And what I find when I'm reading something great is that I can't help but reading faster because I want to know what's going to happen. Mm.
1: Well, that's the difference between a readerly eye and an editorial eye. I think an editor naturally uh, slows down when reading something really good because one wants to find out how it's working that way, what it's doing. If it's, if it's really that good, it shouldn't be too obvious how it's achieving that effect. And since um, an editor is always looking for ways to advise writers, any kind of method is subject to appropriation.
0: Learning from the masters. Learning, yes.
1: yes, But one is learning a different thing as an editor than necessarily the, uh, the ordinary recipient of, uh, of whatever is being read.
0: But that's exactly who you are writing for, so you really want to know what captivates that ordinary reader, I assume. Yes, that's true, and um, unfortunately,
1: um, try as we might, we can never really recapture the, the innocence, the naivete, uh, the virginity, of uh, someone who doesn't know how writing works. Right. And uh, that's a shame because it makes it impossible to enjoy writing in that completely unmediated way, which many other editors sometimes affect to do, do, but um, I can't see how that's possible.
0: Yeah. You're spoiled once you've got these glasses on that, basically are analytical, it takes away from your ability to enjoy the text, is that it? To enjoy it in the,
1: in the same simple way as one not reading through those glasses. It's a little bit like the, another idea of innocence that I sometimes describe to authors. You know, some authors want you to read endless drafts of what they're writing. And I always oblige them, but I also warn them that I'll only be able to read it for the first time once, Mm -hmm. and that has its own value, and you should take it as far as you can before you introduce me, and I lose my innocence vis-a-vis the text.
0: Because I guess what you're thinking is, oh God, I've got to do all this work now. Um, if it's not very good.
1: No, no, I'm thinking that that's as close as I'll come to being the non editor reader. In the same way that, you know, anyone rereading a book is not reading it for the first time and not seeing it as someone reading it for the first time would see it.
0: Yeah, but I, mean, I read, for example, The Magic uh, Mountain. Mm. 25 years ago Mm. Uh, when i pick it up again i'm not going to remember much of anything well there are some ideas of the
1: nature of consciousness and the unconscious is uh is that things are lurking unbeknownst to the conscious mind so i'd question whether it's truly a new experience but i know what you mean i've picked up things um that i haven't read in in years and uh found myself with very few reference points but um that may be because with that many years it's a different person reading you know Mm. different set of readerly experiences different set of uh real life experiences
0: different person
1: different person yeah
0: although thomas mann uh, somewhere, said that he, did, he didn't want you to read it, uh, the book, just once. He, you're not reading it, he said, until you've read it a second time.
1: I think that's true for a great many books of that kind of sophistication. You can't take it all in at once. There are other things that are intended that way. You know, Scripture, for instance. You know, one is not meant to read it once and say, Oh, yeah, that's read it. the Bible, done it. It's uh, true. You're, you're supposed to be there
0: as part of your life, right? Part of your life,
1: part mm-hmm. of your life and uh, while um, there is uh, a kind of distinction that is usually honored between sacred and profane writing, the same sort of phenomenology of reading applies to, to both.
0: I mentioned off the top that you've worked with, uh, with a whole range of different writers novelists, uh, poets, uh, Supreme Court justices, uh, and numerous scholars. It seems to me that that there is at least one common desire uh, among all of these writers, and that is to provide me with exactly that kind of reading experience, where I really want to read it, as I said before, quickly, because, I, because I'm so into it and I want to know what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. So h- how, do you, how do you do that with all of these different types? Of, is there a common approach that you take? To make it read quickly? Not quickly, but in such a way that I'm really into it. Well, um,
1: I think that most of that is is their doing and comes to me when... You know, when we come together in that relationship, which is is essentially a therapeutic relationship, <laughs> uh, <laughs> both uh, both psychologically and in respect of the work itself.
0: Right. Um, well, you um, are asking questions like a psychoanalyst would, right? I sometimes, you, you, sometimes you, yeah. you give answers though, occasionally. Well, but. I.
1: I I mean, I'd give opinions sometimes. Mm-hmm. And I think that the, the first aim is, of course, to intuit what the aims are and then to imagine how those aims could be better facilitated.
0: I guess the aims are to tell their story in a compelling manner.
1: Yeah. I think that um, one's own telling... Of one's story, whether, and I use that term loosely, it's either their personal story or the story they've got in mind, isn't always optimally uh, conceptualized because, again, it's all about the individual relation to the story that you've either recounted to yourself or written and read to yourself and so on. You think it's working one way, and in fact, it might be working a different way for everyone but you. So I'm the surrogate for everyone but you. An imperfect surrogate, as I say, because I read in a certain way, but um, I suppose you'd say that I I read with stricter scrutiny, so that if it works for me, it's likely to work for more people, including the most neurotic.
0: Okay, so what works for you?
1: Well, I think that almost anything can work as a piece of writing if it meets certain criteria.
0: What are those criteria?
1: Well, they're difficult to express, but I know them when they're not being honored. Um, You know, prolixity, that doesn't need to be, is always offensive, unless, of course, it's in the service of something like sonority, you know,
0: Mm
1: -hmm. um, the acoustical quality of something being read. Sometimes editors fall into the trap of imposing economy where other objectives are being met with the words being chosen. You know, whenever I have taught writing, it has always been with an emphasis on time, the temporality, and this, this goes to your question about reading quickly. The temporality of a piece of writing, what it does when you know, and I try to give my students an understanding about what is writing and and I, I generally give them a very imprecise but but in some ways very useful to the uninitiated answer it's It's essentially what to say and what not to say and when and um, if you are led by that essential what I think uh, temporal nature of writing, because writing is a temporal art, like music. It's not like painting, where you have the effect of taking it all in at once, or for any other
0: kind of plastic art. And so does the, sorry, does the, uh, the this temporal uh, understanding, does it vary from subject to subject?
1: I, you know, everything in its own time, I guess you'd say. There are some things that need more time to have their effect. Like what? Well, I mean, if you have a piece, if in the case of non-fiction, if you have a bit of history, you know, it is possible. To, all history is, is itself a kind of fiction. It's a kind of selection process. You can't really record history as, you know, even Herodotus and Thucydides weren't so naive as to think they were actually giving you the whole of history.
0: Mm -hmm. They're giving their version of it. They're giving their version,
1: but it's also, how much space do I need to render this history in the way that I understand it? And the same way that does one event in a story or a novel require two lines or 20 pages to unfold, you know?
0: And again, the, that decision is made based on what? Well, it's based on what the writer intends to do or feels he is doing. What's more important to, to the message that they want to convey?
1: Well, they're, yes, they're artistic or they're, um,
0: their artistic purpose
1: or the idea that they're arguing for. Mm. I mean, I'm making it sound a lot more theoretical and hairy than <laughs> it is, you know. You have a deep intuition of what the time is Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. connecting to some idea or some story. If you have a logical development and an effect you want to make. I mean, the effect of reading two pages is very different from reading 20
0: pages. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, for me, if I can compare it to an interview, Mm -hmm. I have an ear, I think, for what's boring me and Mm -hmm. what's not. And if it's boring me, I'll jump in with another question. So shall we move on? But is that how you work as an editor? You think, okay, well, this is boring me. I think we should jump to another. Well, um, is it boredom the, one of the key criteria? I wouldn't.
1: I wouldn't say that. I'd say um, a kind of exhaustion of empathy, maybe.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> but really, I don't think there's much worse of a a review you can give a book, than that it's boring. Well, but people... Can... To me, anyway, that's the thing. It may not be to others, of course.
1: People uh, have different versions of boring, you know. I mean, some people I've heard say that Knusegaard's books are boring. And self-centered, and, yeah. Yeah, and um, I don't see it that way because I have a different view of what's going on in those books. Um, because what is going on is you know, a progression of thought and uh, observation and so on that is itself structured in a way that constitutes a narrative that goes beyond the narrative of simply what is being represented. I think that many times when people pronounce something boring, it has to do with reading only, as it were, representationally. You know, mm-hmm. reading as Peter Brooks famously formulated it, reading for the plot. Yeah. And a plot can be boring, but doesn't necessarily make a book boring. Um, you could have books with not much happening at the level of incident, but they open up a world mm-hmm. of ideas,
0: of emotions. It's sort of part of a, a larger structure then, <clears throat> building towards something. Well. It's um,
1: Yes, I think that... But the edifice is not the edifice of what is being referred to. It's the edifice of what is coming into being and what Mm -hmm. the reader can apprehend. And not every book is for every reader. Yeah. This is why I have pronounced as I have about reading and uh, somewhat scandalously in the view of some people that... um, Reading is not categorically the greatest thing in the world to be doing, although we have a great democratic faith in the infinitely redemptive and improving effect of reading. But there are many things that could redeem and improve one that have nothing to do with reading, and it's the quality of the engagement, the nature of what one is reading and how one is reading it that has the effect sometimes The two coincide very well, and sometimes it's a dead loss.
0: And your job as an editor is to avoid those losses. Well, uh, some of
1: them can be avoided editorially, and I would say that some of them are are simply inevitable.
0: Mm. So when
1: you say you read The Magic Mountain decades ago, probably Thomas Mann would have judged you then unfit, to read the book. Not just saying one had to read it twice, but one probably has to read it at a certain age to follow, you know? And the great pity, of course, is uh, many of us read books once at the wrong time. Yes. And affect to have that as part of our tuition, our, our formation, One might as well have read a summary in most cases.
0: Well, you remember, you think books that are great uh, had a huge impact at the time of reading. The ones that didn't, they don't get on your list.
1: See, this is why there are cult books like um, Catcher in the Rye, you know. Didn't like that at all. Okay, well, but you would recognize that many people did. Uh, Yeah. And for many people, it was the book of their generation, you know. Yeah. because there's a perfect coincidence between that book as a reading experience and the personal experiences of those people who read it
0: I mm-hmm. think really with On the Road too would, On the Road, yeah. Yeah. yeah another book that
1: I didn't like <laughs> well, but if you read um, uh, Thomas Mann or uh, Dostoevsky
0: or Tolstoy, Tolstoy. Shakespeare there, but, yeah.
1: a lot would be lost upon the, uh, the inexperienced reader, upon first reading those things. Now, maybe someone needs to create a map, graphing out... That's uh, right.
0: When's the best time? <laughs> When's the best time to read <laughs> this? And maybe a
1: questionnaire, you know, yes. kind of like the Proust questionnaire, sort of, yeah. that would calculate and give to an algorithm the inputs that could advise you on when to read. Yeah. something. I mean, because, you know... Something. Like bibliotherapy. Or, like bibliotherapy, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly.
0: Maybe you should put that in the front of each one of your books. Um,
1: or maybe something like a Surgeon General's Warning or right. something
0: like that. Right. Don't read this until you've... So what's the best thing you can do as an editor, then?
1: Um, the best thing you can do as an editor is simply to admire... I think, knowing when to keep your hands to yourself. Um, sometimes, editors become interventional by reflex. Sometimes, they become non-interventional out of laziness. You know, I've heard editors say, this is perfect, I wouldn't touch it. And what am I paying for you
0: to be an editor for then? Well,
1: <laughs> but if you have really read and considered it and think that, yeah, that's one thing. Sometimes editors haven't even read it.
0: Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I guess writers generally are, what, very sensitive to uh, responses from editors, are they? Like they want to be praised. Well, um... Is that a general rule? I think we all want to
1: be praised. Um, Yeah. I mean, you're doing a fantastic job, Nigel, and I... uh, I don't want and to I stand. love how you're
0: responding. <laughs> thank you. Very thank intelligent answer. Thank
1: you, thank you. Um, makes everything better that way. No, I don't know that. I don't. I wouldn't say that writers want to be praised, but I think that being a writer in that relationship with an editor is an enormous vulnerability. Hmm. It's not a meeting of equals, you know. It is like the vulnerability that you have with your psychiatrist or something like that. Hmm. You know, so even an extremely famous or powerful person is just um, a naked human before a certain gaze, and that vulnerability has to be handled correctly, Hmm. because there are very few things that you can do that are as revealing of, of the self than writing and I don't just mean about writing about yourself the written word always betrays the
0: writer yeah I think it takes uh, certain courage to be a writer absolutely mm. I've often fantasized about having it <laughs> yeah do you feel like second fiddle as an editor um,
1: no I feel I get many vicarious thrills, uh, particularly when people accept what I'm thinking, mm-hmm. that becomes the thing people will read and I don't have to answer for it.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's, I guess it's uh, without you it wouldn't be that way and that, that book is perceived as being a really important book. It must make you feel good. Um, but as good as having been the author, do you think? but no. also not as bad. Right. So more of a golden mean. A golden mean. A for golden mean.
1: <laughs> I, I should, uh, by way of full disclosure, say that for the past two years I've had very few experiences as an editor because of um, the job I've been doing here.
0: Yeah, actually that leads me to a question about... Uh, the fact that you came from an editing uh, not an administrative background and yet what much of what you do uh, based on what you've just said mm. is administrative, is that correct? How well, does edit, being an editor prepare you to be an administrator?
1: Well, in publishing very few people come with administrative backgrounds. They have to come from some other kind of background. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that… Um, but why do they have to? Well, because there's no entry level for administration. You <laughs> know, you kind of... Administration is something that you elevate people to from something else. Yeah. And sometimes it's a marketing person
0: Yeah. if well, it's
1: that kind of publisher, and sometimes it's an editorial person if it's another kind of publisher.
0: Yeah, but look at Faber and Faber. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a fantastic literary publisher. Yeah. A publisher happens to come from marketing.
1: Yep, that's true too. That's true too. And it may speak to the fact that um, Faber's self-understanding and editorial uh, faculty is so well formed that marketing is really what is needed. Um, And I also wouldn't uh, but they've
0: got such a strong editorial though it's a, it's well, that's like what they're I, working together
1: that's what i mean and 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 you know you've spoken with Stephen harper and you know Page, that steven sassart Stephen yeah. um and uh, you know that he is not um, he is not without an editorial sensibility but that's mm-hmm. simply i think he
0: has aspired to that
1: yeah yeah, yeah. And, and some can and some cannot yeah. um, but you couldn't I mean, you know, I don't have a marketing background, but I have a lot of ideas about marketing. Um, <laughs> most, most people who do one thing yeah. have had occasion to think about the other. Um, yeah. Yeah. Maybe could not do it as a, you know, for a living, but uh, can direct it in some way.
0: Yeah, I mean, those are two of the most important roles, really, uh, the editorial and the marketing. And that's what, I mean, it's part of... As far as what a publisher does for an author,
1: well, the thing about publishing is that uh, every part of the very labor-intensive process, or what is called value chain, uh, every part of it is indispensable, mm-hmm. and and mm-hmm. and stirs a belief that it is the pivotal part of the process you know <laughs> nobody printed this book <laughs> good luck with publishing it
0: <laughs> right uh, i just want to get back to quickly to editorial uh you talk about a narrative hunger uh that we have is this uh, in the gazette you mean this was in the gazette yes okay I loved that interview. I thought it was. Uh, I, I was uh, very impressed with the, the questioner, whoever that might have been. Well, there's a bunch of real professional
1: interviewers at the Gazette. They, yeah. They know how to make things interesting without uh, completely disgracing the new hires.
0: <laughs> <laughs> they were diplomatic, were they?
1: Um, no, I think they were... Graceful, uh, they gracious? Were gra- they were graceful and gracious, I'd say. I see.
0: Anyway, it was you that, that came up with this, and uh, the fact that us humans can't resist narrative, mm-hmm. and that we find narrative more persuasive than logical argument, mm-hmm. it's, you say, a way of being human. So does this inform all of the editorial work that you do?
1: Well, I think that um, um, not all scholarship now, uh, the work that I publish now, is narratively driven. But where possible, I like for a book to avail itself of uh, the power of narrative. Uh, it's, yeah. not, it's not uh, original to me to observe that uh, um, humans have... Uh, a natural susceptibility to storytelling, Mm. and that um, we need only observe our civic life to see that narratives are much more important than logic. What do you mean by that? Well, there are some things in the political realm that uh, seem illogical, maybe even badly reasoned, but the narrative is persuasive. Mm. You know, political consultants are always talking about the narrative, and I think, in a way, it's a shame that we have, in some sense, vilified
0: narrative. Narrative is somehow a deception. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, all of the marketing, advertising people want to talk, say that they're storytellers now. Oh, well,
1: that's that's true, but and the fact is, they are. And anybody. Uh, selling something is a storyteller. Mm, mm. Whether it be a candidate or a, you know, soap or whatever. Encyclopedia. Encyclopedia. They're, well, no one's selling those anymore. <laughs> but, or Fuller brushes I, I guess. But, um, you know, a, a narrative is a, you know, a mnemonic way of keeping something in your head because narratives are much easier to remember than arguments. If you take some line from a a philosopher that you know, they're remembered by their uh, QEDs, you know, the final, the bottom line of the philosophy is this. Yeah. You might be hard-pressed, even if you've read the philosopher, to reason out, recreate the proof step by step. But if I tell you a story, there's a much higher probability that you can tell it back to me.
0: Yeah. There's why? A, why is that? It's because that's how we understand. That's how our brain works.
1: Yeah, I think that's um that, some, that uh, there's an associative logic. There's uh, um, there's a connective way that one thing leads to another. You you infer causality, and you causality at the level of incident is easier than causality at the at the level of pure idea. You know, mm-hmm. um, and sometimes the turns in a and a philosophical argument, the, the nodal points of causality are much more difficult or brilliant than the conclusion, you know? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And I suppose, though, that we expect a conclusion, and that's why we keep turning the pages.
1: We expect there's a reason why something has begun and why it has ended. Mm-hmm. And I return, I'm returned to my writing classes which were um, broken up for the sake of emphasizing temporality into beginnings, middles, and endings. Mm. Um, now, that can sound quite banal, but um, there's a whole sort of way of thinking of how a story or any kind of narrative begins, or an argument, really. I mean, but that's much more, that's more, much more governed by pure logic uh, rather than the logic of storytelling which can be very idiosyncratic but there's a reason why something begins a certain way there should be a reason why it ends a certain way and the middle which sounds rather unglamorous is the is the way that both are justified why one began that way mm-hmm. began that way and why one ended that way it is you know the aristotelian peripatia you know What's the point of this trip here? You know, I'm trying to get from A to B. Mm -hmm. What's the point of that space in between?
0: Mm -hmm. You know? Mm -hmm. Another thing that you talk about uh, uh, being an editor is you must explain. One must explain why one is doing what one is doing. And often the thing to be explained is a very abstract thing uh, or subtle thing. And so editing hones one's skills for explaining.
1: I think that's true.
0: So you have to be a very good communicator.
1: Well, um, there are different ways of saying that or being that, but you you have to be good at verbal justification of things. You know, if I can't say why something is better from what I found, it's left only to the uh, the writer say to to intuit why it's better, and maybe he can explain it or she can explain it in a yeah. way I can't because they'll say yes, of course that because that sounds better or that's more efficient or that's that sounds more ironic or you know polyvalent or whatever they're trying to do. It conforms with their purposes. Uh, I don't like to explain everything. I like I like actually for. Um, writers themselves to discover why it's better. And I say, accept what you like, reject what you don't like. But if there's something really important that I think really bears upon the success of a piece of writing, then I really need to explain why I feel that way.
0: You have to justify yourself. You have to
1: justify yourself. It's that old, you know, kind of Einstein line. If you can't, if you can't explain something simply, then you don't really understand it. You know? yeah. I think it was Einstein. But somebody much smarter than, uh, than
0: I. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it, just sort of connected to that, I think he said something like, if, if you can simplify something that's very complex, you're smart.
1: Well, you certainly understand what counts and what doesn't in, mm. in whatever the object is.
0: Mm-hmm. Just moving along then to your role as the publisher at a university press... You decide what's published.
1: Well, it's a complicated uh, process, actually. The editors have to discover something to propose, and I have to approve it. And a further thing happens. The board of syndics that we have has to give its blessing to the final product. So I may approve a book in principle. Somebody, somebody wants to write... a a book about Homer, for instance, Mm -hmm. and I say that's a great idea and seems to have some good ideas about it. The book comes in, the book must be sent for peer review because that's the nature of scholarly publishing. Mm -hmm. The peer reviewers say, well let's say they're neither, they say neither that thing is terrible, don't publish it, nor that the thing is great, publish it as is. If they say, if they both say publish it as is, then it's a very simple thing. If they both have misgivings, then it is for the syndics to adjudicate do we go forward with the promise of revision? Do we say this book doesn't quite meet our standards? So there's a part of the process that um, uh, let's say in contractual terms delivery and acceptance of a manuscript. The acceptance is ultimately with the syndics. They uh, tell us what we can publish, or rather what we can't publish.
0: Right. So what happens if they say we can't publish this and you think it's the best thing you've ever worked on?
1: Well, it certainly hasn't happened yet,
0: Um, but I think I would... Tender your resignation?
1: No, I wouldn't tender my resignation. I would... uh, Well there are two means at my disposal. If I don't think something... if I think something is important but not... not something that can be peer-reviewed, because, say, it it touches on too many areas, or... it's, it's so original that there isn't really a body of scholarship or expertise, or some other purpose that is part of our mission, I may just put it forth as what is called a director's choice. However, be careful what you ask for, because if, this, if it eventuates in a disgrace for the press and the <laughs> It's universe, all yours, It's right? all mine. So, I'm very, I'm very judicious about... It. Yes. Some would even it's say... A powerful s- weapon, but... It's not as if the press is the defendant, and, or the author is the defendant, and the, and the syndics are the jury. Mm. Um, they're more like the referees, you know, they, they keep us honest. And they help us to uphold the standards, you know, because none of us here publishing in any field is an expert in that field yeah. to rival the expertise of the author or the relevant syndic.
0: They make sure that what what's in the book, is factual and well, not not only not factual not wrong but, or... but
1: plausible in relation to the state of the art as as it exists then, mm-hmm. you know. It's sort of an expert opinion. Now, this doesn't really exist in trade publishing, although at the serious end of trade publishing, I know people, and I have done in the past, uh, sent it for an informal peer review, you know?
0: Yeah. You know, I don't know
1: everything about, say, the Russian Revolution. If I send it to someone who does, because I think some things here don't jibe with my, you know, rudimentary understanding of, (laughs) you know... (laughs) So, uh, in some sense, the stranger thing for people to understand is what goes on in, is the thing that goes on in trade publishing, which is the editor pronounces on the acceptability of something. Mm. Because when something goes wrong, inevitably, a person, a a layman will say, didn't anybody fact check this? Mm -hmm. And the answer, of course, is no, nobody fact, (laughs) this is not a magazine article, this is a book, you know. Yeah. And... You know, peer review is, in a way, fact checking because mm. uh, readers' reports come up with, you know, dozens of line by line corrections in some cases. So uh, you can't
0: really put a book out that as anywhere near as quickly as you could on the trade side. Well, I could, for instance, do that little director's choice,
1: yeah. but there is a part of the process that is, that is extra. Mm hmm. Ultimately, if you gave two manuscripts, if they gave the same manuscript to a trade editor and an academic editor, the academic editor would probably have to go through some hoops to get it out as fast as the trade editor. Because Mm -hmm. no expert in any area has time to drop everything and read something carefully. Maybe some do, Mm -hmm. but very rarely. Mm -hmm. So you have to wait. You have to wait for them to be ready to do it, for them to actually do it, and then also for the author to respond to what they've done. Yeah. So, we are necessarily not as nimble, but I've tried to make us nimble in other ways. Like what? Well, like um, responding very quickly to submissions, not waiting till the last minute to do certain parts of the... In other words, start the publishing process even while the editorial process is um, underway.
0: You talk uh, about the fact that there's two readers. There's the, a very specialized audience mm. who know the topic intimately mm. and deeply, and then a wider audience, and you refer to that as a holy, the holy grail of all publishing.
1: Well, um, everyone wants the widest possible audience for a book. And sometimes it's down to execution, you know. If I can perceive a way in which a book can be presented differently and reach many more people, Mm -hmm. uh, I can usually get an author's attention. Um, Assuming they're not compromising the experience or the information for their most important reader, which in the case of an academic author is often others in the field.
0: Yeah, that seems to be a, a, a challenge, it would be quite a challenge to, to appeal to this very erudite, demanding audience, mm-hmm. and also make it appealing to the public, yeah. how do you do well, that?
1: Well, um, you know, uh, I think that when we say the public, we're not talking about um, James Patterson's readership in some kind. No. Not to besmirch it, there may be... got to be something good about what he does. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm saying that that appeals to a great many people. Mm-hmm. I don't mean the public at large. I mean a, a, a segment of the public yeah. that is not in the Academy, but let's say a reader of the New York Review and something like that. Okay, A sophisticated reader.
0: With an interest in the topic. With an
1: interest in probably a lot of things, uh, with right. that sophistication, probably a, um, a multifarious range of interest. But um, here's a way of thinking about it. I tell people, write the book not just for people in your field, but so that someone in another field with an interest could read it and then be... Perhaps inspired to incorporate it in their discipline or something like that, mm. you know, so obviously, someone in an adjacent or even a very different field doesn't have the immersion into your field that the most uh, specialized monograph would require, but make it so that it 's not impenetrable to the interested non expert but a but a person of of, of real cultivation and uh, and, uh, and aptitude. A, a quick study.
0: Yeah. Well, some of the most fascinating uh, sort of reads have to do with sort of cross-pollination between different different areas that you might not ever have even imagined.
1: I think that's right, and um, it may speak to the, the aging out of certain disciplines, you know. How much do we have left to uncover or say about and then here I would insert some disciplines, but I won't name them by name, mm-hmm. because I'll offend colleagues right. <laughs> in those disciplines. But, you know, there's kind of intersect, you know, in, um, interdisciplinarity is not just because of the sake of doing something interesting. It it's also comes about because most things have been
0: done in, uh, in some disciplines. Yeah. One of the things in trade publishing that dominates is this desire for the bestseller, the big, the big hit. Mm. And you suggest we're not
1: against it ourselves.
0: No, no, I can imagine. Uh, we've even had it. <laughs> Pardon, you have
1: had it. We've had, we've had uh, bestsellers, and uh, yeah, yeah, One of the, you know, I'm I'm not aware if there's another one in recent history, but uh, Thomas Piketty's. Capital in the 21st Century, was a number one New York Times bestseller. Hmm. And um, we have the... Which, f- what year was that? Uh, 2014. Okay. Uh, it preceded me, so I can't take any credit. from it. But um, the follow-up to that book, an equally ambitious and uh, uh, transformative piece of work, is uh, coming this spring.
0: By the same author?
1: Yes. Hmm. Well, usually the follow-up is the same author.
0: It, usually, yeah. Uh, but he might have died and maybe a, a disciple that's, would have... That, that's uh, true. It
1: could have the Steve Larson effect. Yeah, that's right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but actually, because of that sort of emphasis on the best seller, you suggest that uh, trade trade houses leave open opportunity for you because, because of the fact that they're not full-heartedly publishing through mid-list books. Yeah, hmm.
1: I think that that's uh, something that uh, has always been true about big publishers, that, um, um, you know, what could be a feast to an academic publisher? It might be scraps to, <laughs> yeah. you know. Yeah, um, If we can sell five or 10,000 copies of a book, That's really not bad, Mm -hmm. but um, for a commercial publisher with a much more oppressive overhead structure, um, it's not because they're barbarians, you know, it's because uh, they have much more lights to pay to keep on.
0: Or demanding shareholders. Or
1: demanding shareholders, but, um, you know, uh, they usually work it out so that a few books pay for the other books. But that that does leave open an opportunity because you're not going to commit as many resources to the mid-list book as we might because it might not be mid-list at all for us. Mm -hmm. It might be at the very top of our list.
0: You talk about competencies that uh, commercial publishers have that you might be able to bring to this university press what might be some examples of those? Well, um, certainly,
1: you know, every kind of matter of presentation. You know, I think that uh, um, design then. Well, certainly, visual presentation, yeah. But I mean, the way we talk about books, the way we uh, position books, there sometimes is the the book that could as easily have been published by a trade. Or an academic house, and um, the whiff of it coming from the academic house can be a little forbidding mm-hmm. or um, a little a little too proudly serious. I think that you know we 're not trying to sensationalize our books, but there is an element of seduction in publishing, and whether it 's the look or the title or um, The copy, you know. The buzz? The buzz, you know. You know, academics are not immune to buzz. They're as human as anyone else. And the people who read academic books are responsive to um, the same kind of stimuli as those who read any books. And um, a lot of times it seems that the art of publishing academic authors emphasizes the academic rather than the publishing part. Yeah. Now there are elements to academic publishing, of which trade trade publishers are uh, completely ignorant, and uh, and it's been a crash course for me.
0: Right.
1: You know, um, and you have to kind of master that art form too. But there are kind of. What if, did we touch on that or not? Well, probably not. There are great many things that one can take for granted on the basis of. Scale and market share of one of the big commercial houses, the, the the freedom to send out as many copies as they do. You know we print fewer, so we have to be more judicious about where we send the free ones. You know we have limited means of influencing Amazon's uh, buying patterns, although my trade colleagues would you know in their own view uh, feel limited and helpless too. Uh, but you know. How do you deal with a gorilla? Very politely. You know, it's I, I, I suppose I have to I have to be governed by the idea that if there is business to be done, if there are sales to be made, Amazon want to have the product to sell because they're in business. The difficulty comes when it's it's really being algorithmic, algorithmically decided, you know, when to order stock or when not. And we try to stimulate that by feeding them information. So it's, um, I guess you'd say it's a little bit of a dance of the seven veils or something that mm-hmm. capture their interest by saying, hey, do you know uh, Paul Krugman is tweeting about this book? Or we mm-hmm. have an NPR interview about this book. Feed as much actionable intelligence in real time where, you know, the buy, the initial buy for a trade house might be higher. So we have to be uh, more diligent about feeding information so that the reorders and the the flow of of stock won't dry up from them. And, you know, depending on the book, they're 40 to 50% of our business, so...
0: What about the... the, What have you learned about... uh, uh, that's good about academic uh, publishing, then? that's different from what you've
1: come from? The standards uh, that that um, are imposed by peer review and that sort of thing mm. are very impressive. I had uh, published a book by a guy called Harry Frankfurt called *Untruth*, but I was inspired to publish it because a present colleague of mine, Ian Malcolm, when he was working at Princeton University Press, had published one of my favorite books of Harry Frankfurt's or anyone's called. Uh, i don't know this is a family show, but it was called on bullshit and uh, it's not a family it 's not a family show good and the policing of bullshit in uh, academic publishing is very gratifying
0: i mean it's doing the job that the media should be doing on Trump, for example well,
1: on anyone who is operating with and again i, I recommend this book highly uh, because the way he theorizes on truth. No, no, no. I, I, well, I do recommend on truth, but I recommend on bullshit. Uh, okay. I'm speaking, <laughs> uh, we're speaking about bullshit, not, truth has its own value.
0: Well, truth and bullshit kind of go together.
1: The books are necessarily related, and that's why it seemed fitting to publish it. Yeah. Um, but the, the radicalism is in his concept of bullshit, which he, which he distinguishes from lying, mm-hmm. but operating rather with uh, an indifference to the truth. This is the essence of bullshit. And trade publishers, wittingly or not, sometimes engage in bullshit because, whether by reason of how they describe a book or what they allow to be in a book... Especially what they do to describe a book. Certainly that. and um, Because every book that's published... Is mesmerizing. ...is the greatest
0: book ever published. Exactly.
1: exactly. It's almost a, uh, a convention. If you didn't make hyperbolic claims, um, they'd
0: say, well, what's wrong with this book? right. It's not as good as all the other <laughs> <Right, laughs> great exactly. ones. Exactly. It's, yeah. it's sub-great. Why would I do
1: that? <laughs> um, but um, in academic publishing, you can't be indifferent to the truth. Mm. In trade publishing, there's always the temptation and very often uh, a succumbing to the temptation of publishing something that is uh, sort of Truthy, but not true. Because ultimately, it is a commercial enterprise, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. and you leave it to other mechanisms, like the media, or if they're on the job or uh, reviewers and so on. Mm. You leave that, leave it to them to separate uh, truth from falsehood. Well, like
0: Naomi Wolf's recent experience.
1: Uh, yes, yes, that was. She, that, that is a perfect instance of someone who would have been infinitely better served at an academic press. Mm-hmm. Because you have, I presume, some editor who was probably, you know, uh, a very clever person, but not conversant enough with the history that she was writing about. Yeah. And she made a claim that to a professional historian was simply, you know, false on the face of it. and. Even worse, based a whole book on it. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a cautionary tale, but it doesn't happen often enough for to drive people here where they belong. Right.
0: right. Just uh, finally, uh, we were talking about uh, about design and uh, and the uh, packaging of books, and
1: uh, and when we, when we
0: sat down, you we were saying you were very attracted
1: to that package of. Uh, Thomas Breen, Tim Breen,
0: rather, uh, the will of the people. Well, what I'm going to say is that there's a history, a history uh, at the Harvard University Press, but going back particularly to the 20s. Mm. Uh, and again, I don't know if you've had much of a chance to to kind of familiarize yourself with various past. Uh, directors of the the press but one in particular Harold Murdoch was uh, responsible for uh, quite an impressive um, improvement in the appearance Mm. of books and he uh, worked with Bruce Rogers Mm -hmm. and uh, Daniel Berkeley Updike and uh, during that period, Harvard's books were perceived to be um, among the best, most beautiful books published. I think they won, they won a ton of uh, AIGA book design awards that had just sort of commenced mm-hmm. back in the twenties. Yeah, um, are you are you familiar with any of that? Uh, A bit, Uh, and I do know that um,
1: there is an ebb and flow uh, to that kind of excellence in any place. Around that time, as you know, Knopf was
0: founded. Yeah, 1915, yeah. Yeah. And um,
1: it was from the beginning a place that emphasized... The look of books, the yes. design of books. Yeah,
0: Dugan's um, was an important. Yeah,
1: and so designer. Um, that is an element of of history that I that I really uh, resonate with, mm-hmm. because it is impossible to be to have been at cannot for any time and not to be obsessed with the way things
0: look. Well, you've got the great Chip, uh, Chip Kid too. We have a whole
1: team, and mm-hmm. Chip is. Chip was maybe the only one there now who was already there when I first arrived in 1990. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, but only barely there. He was he was there for ten seconds maybe or something like that. But um, but now he is. He's a, he's an eminence um, and. Um, but the whole team is really fantastic, and it's a culture of visual innovation and so on. And as I say, there's an ebb and flow. I think that the, the, the Knopf effect has been very influential uh, in raising the bar uh, among a lot of other commercial publishers. And you see generally a, a great deal of interesting design. And it is, it is something that we think about here. You know, what, um, what should these things look like? I think that... Um, there's a perception that um, because of the long administration that preceded mine, there had uh, taken hold of you that a Harvard book had to look a certain way and that the range of possible design idioms and so on was circumscribed. And we're trying to get past that because I do think it's, a, it's an important part of the art of publishing. And, and great design is... Uh, is, is something that every book deserves.
0: Well, uh, I, I, I collect certain types of books because of the way they're designed, you know. It's, it, it, it's just, uh, it's, they're things of beauty, objects yeah. of art.
1: Yeah, I, 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 you know, uh, there's the banal thing about judging a book by its cover, but you certainly pick up a book by its cover, and if that's not... The final judgment on a book, it's certainly the one that has to precede any other. Um, if, it's, if it's not something you want to pick up, uh, the likelihood of your being a reader of it is uh, considerably diminished.
0: Yeah. Just finally, uh, speaking of wanting to pick up books, uh, what book currently in production mm-hmm are you most excited about? Well, I
1: suppose it would have to be the one I described to you, Thomas Piketty's new book, which aims to give a historical account of uh, um, inequality over human history. And uh, Hmm. to explain that it is not, in fact, a natural feature of human society, but an ideological commitment. That has transcended a number of societies, mm. and tracing the, the biography of inequality,
0: to me, biography of the one percent.
1: Well, not only the one percent. I mean, that that could be uh, that could be a different kind of book. That could be a, uh, a story from Croesus to, uh, <laughs> Bezos. You know, but. Uh, but it's more like the, the history of disparity, you know, of, of, a, of serious disparity. Mm-hmm. And I think it's going to be enormously powerful because in the years intervening uh, since the, the first book, which was an account of why, you know, the return on capital was such a feature in, um, in creating income inequality, the natural way that capital... Uh, accumulates
0: mm, yeah. um, money for nothing.
1: money for nothing, it, to, to put it in the most <laughs> anti-capitalist way musical way
0: musical way,
1: but the idea that the idea of inequality has become even in the short time since then, so um, haunting of our political consciousness and mm. and, and a matter of, uh, of such common interest um, that I suspect there'll, there'll, there'll be quite a few people interested to know uh, how humanity got to this point.
0: Well, I hope that you reach the Holy Grail with or, or it becomes your Holy Grail. <laughs>
1: um, we can only hope I thank you for that, uh, for that blessing.
0: <laughs> I have been speaking to George Andreu, who is the director of the Harvard University Press in his uh, office in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Thanks very much.
1: Thank you for coming to Cambridge and visiting HUP.